I've noticed a number of peculiar incidents among the members of the student body, all having to do with rock and roll music. Now, if you don't think this song is the greatest song ever, I will fight you. With its eclectic instrumental blend of rock, jazz, dub reggae, and electronic music, Tortoise became a leading band of the so-called post-rock movement of the 90s. I'm Jim DeRogatis. And I'm Greg Cott. Tortoise joins us for a conversation and live performance. Plus, we pay tribute to Alan Vega of Suicide and review the second album from British soul musician Michael Kiwanuka. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions. This is Sound Opinions, and Greg, we were thrilled to have Tortoise in our studio for a conversation and a live performance, probably the reigning band for two decades now in the genre known as post-rock. But I think it would be helpful for some listeners if we talked a little bit about post-rock before we got into this. (laughs) Um, First and foremost, that name. Uh, Just as with grunge or just about any genre name that's ever been uh, heaped on a band, uh, every post-rock musician I've ever met in the last two decades has hated that term, okay? Mm-hmm. <laughs> they never said they were post-anything. They liked rock and roll. But what does that term mean? Seems to have been the English critic Simon Reynolds, around about 1994, who coined the name for a new uh, wave of mostly instrumental bands that were coming up in the U.K. and the U.S. Uh, Simon wrote that post-rock, quote, uses rock instrumentation for non-rock purposes, using guitars as facilitators of timbre and texture rather than riffs and power chords. So uh, Simon used that word. He wasn't saying it should kill off rock. That became how it was reduced. Rock is dead. Right? How many times we've heard rock is dead over the last 60 years, right? Rock is dead. This is the new music. What it really was was, was musicians using uh, experimental techniques, kind of like a DJ, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Jumping from genre to genre. Absolutely. It was a collage style of, of music making, of bringing in all these different influences. I mean, when you talk about uh, the roots of what post-rock became, you know, you can go all the way back to a band like the Velvet Underground, sure. bringing viola and experimental classical Stockhausen music influences. Right, yes. exactly. I think it really starts in, in the 70s and then into the early 80s, Jim. You know, uh, German art rock, Krautrock. Yes. You know, Neu, Can, Kraftwerk were huge influences on this movement. You know, the experimenting with electronic music. Image Limited, that uh, metal box record, that mm. second pill record with the bassline way up front, uh, was a big influence on it. You know, sort of pulling back the guitars and forefronting the bass. It is your character, deep in your nature. Take one example, sample and hold, romance and replace the lack in yourself. It is your nature. You had to attribute that to a lot of what was going on in Jamaica, the dub reggae scene. People like King Tubby and Lee Scratch Perry, you know, creating these ghostly bass-dominated soundscapes out of these famous reggae songs. (laughs) 
an awareness of jazz, right? And not oh, not not in the jazz fusion weather report sense, but really strange rock jazz mergers like Robert Wyatt and Soft Machine in the late '60s, and in the '70s, band like Henry Cow. Yeah, that was an even better genre name. They called themselves <laughs> Rock in Opposition. <laughs> Chicago was a hotbed uh, for post-rock because of the Empty Bottle, a rock club here that would dare to put a jazz band on with a garage rock band. Um, There were three important labels uh, here, Thrill Jockey, Cranky Records, Drag City. Yes, absolutely, and the the bands uh, around them. Scene Cake uh, was an important band in this movement. Gaster Del Sol, David Grubbs, and Jim O'Rourke, I would argue two of the most important uh, musicians in experimental music Mm -hmm. for the last 20, 30 years in that very important duo. September reverses and the equinox is flipped. Winter slides into fall. The Dennison Kimball trio, Dwayne Dennison from the Jesus Lizard, yeah. uh, combining with Jim Kimball, a drummer who had been in a number of uh, indie rock bands, and then they added Ken Vandermark out of the jazz right. scene. So they, you had this incredible uh, collision of styles in that group. It also seemed to me that, that, that a member of Tortoise was, was in every one of these other bands. Yeah, you know, if you weren't in at least a half dozen bands in that scene, <laughs> you weren't working hard enough. And, and that was part of the reason is that all of these musicians were sort of dabbling in these different scenes and genres and bringing it together. And I think really Tortoise, uh, you know, rose to the top because they perhaps were the greatest collage artists of them all. But then you, you widen it out and, you know, you can go to England and Stereolab, embrace that yes. term. You know, I, I remember interviewing Letitia Sadier in that band in the early 90s, and she said, you know, we hate garage rock bands. We don't like, you know, a bunch of guys, you know, rehearsing in the garage and recording a live performance, basically. She said, we're using the studio as an instrument. Uh, yeah, they, and they Stereolab were... came here and worked with John McIntyre of Tortoise. Exactly, like the meeting of the two empires, you yes, know? Stereolab yes. collaborates with Tortoise. I think when we look at England, you look at Stereolab, uh, you look at bands like Moonshake, Sea Feel, you know, Pram, Maine. These bands were experimenting with these new sounds. You know, you go to Montreal, very, very big scene for this kind of music there in the early to mid-90s. Godspeed You Black Emperor, Mm -hmm. I think, was one of the primary exponents of this style of music. I gotta confess, my heart went to the bands that were most uh, forwarding the Krautrock ideal. I love those analog synthesizers. A band like Stereolab, we already mentioned, I loved a band called La Bradford that really built on those Moog German records.
So here's a question. Does post-rock still exist today? I mean, sometimes I see it broadened out so widely that it's uh, you know utterly meaningless. I've heard Sigur Rós uh, yeah. from Iceland called post-rock. I'm not so sure that's right. Well, I really think, Jim, that almost any band today, could you could say, well, they're post-rock in some way. Unless you're basically a traditional uh, three-piece, four-piece uh, guitar-based drums band that is playing blues-based riffs, uh, you're probably doing something a little different. And I think that whole idea of music as more of a collage, bringing in different styles, you know, the fact that you can do home recording now, basically create a studio in your bedroom, has enabled this sort of mix-and-match uh, kind of uh, composition that bands like Tortoise were starting to really explore fully in the mid-90s. And I also think in the listening habits of listeners, as opposed to you know different genres of music being in their own silos and you only will listen to one type of music, we see listeners doing this mixing and matching and, and, and collage-type listening with their, you know, with their cell phones now. Well, well, that's been the case from the beginning of time. Since teenagers were playing 45s right. on little portable record players, they would go from soul to R&B to rock and roll. We're in shuffle mode, and post-rock really was shuffle mode for the 90s. You there know? you go. We're, we're there again 20 years later. Tortoise, you know, as the band that sort of started it all in many ways, uh, you know, I have to say it wasn't just a studio creation. Seeing this band live was a, a real treat. There were more instruments on stage <laughs> than you would see at most music schools. I mean, marimbas, vibraphones, synthesizers, keyboards, twin drum kits. Uh, it was an amazing array of instruments, and they would jump around and play all of them. It was uh, quite a sight to see. It was great to see them, uh, even in slightly stripped-down fashion, in the studio recently. Uh, Doug McCombs, John Herndon, Jeff Parker, Dan Bittney, John McIntyre, uh, they're the core of the band right now. McIntyre, we have to point out, one of the great uh, producers of that era, uh, working out of his Soma Studios, did a lot of the so-called post-rock records there in Chicago in that era. Uh, the first version was just... Uh, John Herndon and Doug McCombs, though, in, in the late 80s. So I had to ask Doug what the impetus was for getting together with John way back then. Uh, we were good friends, and we were playing in um, bands that were doing shows together a lot, and we kind of decided we wanted to try and play together. But it was, like, not really a concrete idea of what we would do or, or anything. So initially, we just kind of got together once a year <laughs> for a few years and just tried some ideas out and it was just bass and drums was like the the start of it just thinking okay what can we do with just bass and drums like what would it be and you know it was a lot of jump starting and a lot of pauses and failures or a couple of times trying to record stuff without really having worked out too much material and then eventually we started recording some really bare bones ideas for songs and uh that's kind of during the process of that is when we asked uh john mcintyre and ken bundy brown to uh play with us thinking it would be cool to have another drummer and another bass player John Herndon, a.k.a. Johnny Machine, he just says, you know, we were, we were in these other bands, right? <laughs> Two of the best rock bands in Midwestern rock history. Doug is in 11th Dream Day, uh, still, and you were in Poster Children. And I have always read, and I think we've talked about this, you wanted to be Sly and Robbie in terms of a rhythm section. That was kind of the original goal, right? You know, I think we were 
listening to a lot of reggae music at the time. Just the the fact that they were doing all these different things、um, outside. You know, they play on like Grace Jones records and、yeah. and did some stuff with Bob Dylan. And I thought like, wow, cool rhythm section for hire. I just wanted to play weird music with friends, you know. And Doug and I had been just hanging out and riding skateboards with our moccasins on and stuff for a long time. <laughs> and、uh, so I just thought, well, this is like my best friend. It would be great to just play music with him. And so that was really it. We were also at the time discovering like Adrian Sherwood production and and the Anya sound and. Was really into that record, Ruts DC meets the Mad Professor,、mm-hmm. and like、uh, environmental changes by like African Head Charge, but also like Remain in Light and My Life in the Bush of Ghosts, like those kinds of records. So we're talking about tape loops. We're talking about layers of samples. So it was just kind of like, well, I really love this rock music, but there's this whole other realm of、uh, approaching music that I find super interesting. So trying, just trying to find people who were thinking broad across the spectrum. Well, I think we got to give people a sense of what Tortoise sounds like. You guys gonna do something from the new album, the seventh album, the Catastrophist, Mr. Bitney? Yeah. What are you gonna play? <laughs> Could play the Catastrophist. Title track. Title track. It's a good idea.
That is Tortoise with the title track from its new album, The Catastrophist, live on Sound Opinions. You can see video of Tortoise's complete set at soundopinions.org. After a short break, we'll have more conversation and performances from the band, and later we'll review the new record from London singer-songwriter Michael Kiwanuka. That's all coming up on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. My partner is Jim DeRegatis, and that's a little bit of one of the signature songs of that post-rock era. Uh, Jed, the 21-minute track that opens the 1996 album Millions Now Living Will Never Die by our guest this week, Tortoise. With the release of that album and its follow-up TNT in 1998, Tortoise got a lot of critical attention, both in the U.S. and abroad. I mean, the European media was 
just over the top about <laughs> the importance of this band. The members of Tortoise had each been involved in dozens of other bands uh, before that point. So I asked uh, co-founder Doug McCombs if he was surprised that this particular project turned into his main gig by the late 90s. It was a little surprising. I mean, the first Tortoise album, I think we knew that we were on to something that was productive and creative for us, and, and it was definitely um, fulfilling in many, many ways. And I think we just thought a few of our friends would like it or something. So it was kind of surprising the reception it did get and then when millions kind of exploded the whole thing Mm -hmm. um, it was kind of a shock instrumental music i mean it was like there's no vocals basically on these recordings and this was very much outside the mainstream and yet this acceptance. I think you have to explain to people what was being written. They had killed rock and roll. <laughs> they had invented the future. They were post-rock. They were post-everything. They were yeah. not, not that you didn't deserve it. You did, but it was so serious. I could point to um, Devo. It was a big band mm. for all of us, and all of these different things coexist within the band. Like There's humor, and there's seriousness, and there's fun, but there's also like, you know, a weird sense of impending danger. <laughs> I feel like we want to have that in our band, you know? Mm-hmm. We're not trying to be super smart about anything, but we're not trying to be stupid either. I want to bring uh, Jeff into the discussion here, too, Jeff Parker. Jeff, uh, a guy with serious jazz chops, and I think one of the things about Tortoise that was so interesting is that there was big umbrella in this group. A lot of stuff was being brought to the table musically, uh, stuff that you didn't think actually belonged together. You know, okay, we're a little Sun Ra here, a little Steve Reich over there, and the next thing you know, you've got other influences in there. What made you interested in playing with these guys? Because you've played with some serious musicians in your life. I've always had a kind of like rhythm section focused guitar style. I mean, I never really asked you guys. <laughs> but it, I what think, he's saying is he never asked if he could be in the band, and we never told him he could be in the band. He just, <laughs> just kept coming. Just keeps showing up. I think he's rethinking his decision. Yeah. <laughs> I always had a kind of bottom-heavy guitar style, you know. I mean, I when mm-hmm. I started playing guitar, I mean, I I didn't have a bass, so I would just play bass lines on the guitar, you mm-hmm. know. Kind of came up listening to, like, funk on AM radio, and we were, all you could hear was the bass, and the bass was such a strong voice. And so when I did join the band, I mostly just tried to stay out of the way and kind of just, like, complement what they were already doing and more like textures and colors right you know it was a really different approach than what i was used to playing with uh, most of the conventional jazz groups that i was playing with.
talk about the idea of, okay, we've got this kind of signature sound. People hear a few notes of a, a record and they go, oh, that sounds like Tortoise. How do you fight that off, uh, you know, doing for 25 years, making seven records? Is it, is it difficult to sort of get beyond that and say, we've got to keep challenging ourselves just the way we did at the very start of this group, where it just seemed like a wide open uh, sea of possibilities? That's kind of the reason it takes us longer and longer to make an album each time. We're trying to, like, in at least a small way, move away from things that we've done before. Um, I think we're self-critical in a way, in, in that sort of way, when maybe it doesn't really matter that much. Maybe we should just be doing whatever, whatever we, whatever, <laughs> we, I mean, whatever we want and whatever sounds good. But I think that's ultimately what happens. What we want and what sounds good to us takes longer and longer for us to arrive at each time. Um, we're also really fortunate in another way, or in the, the post-rock sort of way, where... Um, like we, we, we can be like, we are invited to do things that a lot of rock bands don't get invited to do. Right, I mean, yeah, we right. get invited to jazz festivals and electronic music festivals. And I think we're essentially are, are a rock band, but we, we're, we're given this free pass to do all this other stuff. And that's great for us to like be able to dabble in these other worlds. And well, I can't think of another rock band that has played with uh, Tom Zay and Fred Anderson, for example. Fred Anderson, this improv jazz giant, and then Tom Zay, this Brazilian avant-garde musician. All of these people saw something in you that would dovetail with whatever they were doing. Well, I want to talk about some of the collaborations on The Catastrophist, but let's hear another tune first. Jeff Parker, what are you going to play? Uh, I think the next song we're going to play is Shake Hands with Danger.
Shake Hands with Danger from Tortoise, a track from the new album, The Catastrophist. Okay, explain what you were playing that sort of gamelan-like melody on for listeners. Uh, That's a MIDI marimba. It's uh, basically a controller, but, you know, it's got really nice lights. The crowd loves it. (laughs) (laughs) They can see it from above. You guys used to haul around the old Deegan, actual heavy vibes and marimbas. Well, we still bring the vibes. Still do. But yeah, we used to bring a marimba, and I swear sound checks would last eight hours because they <laughs> sit there trying to EQ the marimbas yeah. for. Um, so yeah, we we got lucky with, with the controller, MIDI controller. Well, we should uh, point out that when when uh, Tortoise was still was starting to become a bigger band, it had grown beyond you know John and Doug as the rhythm section for hire into this kind of project thing. And I forget, it might have been John McIntyre, your place or studio, and I just remember walking into this room, there was more gadgets lying around than any band's, uh, you know, play space that I'd ever seen. Little keyboards, analog synths. How did that sort of start, John McIntyre, that you, this just collection of instruments, and it, it eventually I think every one of those was used in some way on a, on a tortoise record, right? I would imagine so, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I guess it just came from uh, what I was studying and then knowing that I wanted to get into production. And at that time, you kind of had to have all these hardware devices as tools rather than, you know, like what everybody can do nowadays with a computer. What was your favorite oddball uh, instrument, non-unconventional uh, instrument that you were able to use uh, as, as a key part of a tortoise track? Actually, the, I think it's the second track on the previous album, there's a hammer dulcimer sound. It's tuned down like a fifth, so it's a really, really flappy kind of boing, boing type sound. say the least not conventional instruments and yet at the same time guitar bass drums but also all this other exotica on top of it the latest piece of exotica for you guys this is really weird you've got vocalists on this stop the presses (laughs) what that's the strangest instrument of all don't they have an app for that now (laughs) we thought we'd uh, dip our toes into the world of novelty music (laughs) todd rittman u.s maple uh is on the a shocking cover of David Essex's 70s hit, Rock On. I think it's a really unusual song. It sounds like a tortoise song to me. Yeah, there were the, there was weird delay breakdowns in there. Yeah. And there's like barely any drums on it, you know? Yeah. That's like conga until the end or something, until the end of the song. It's just a weird, it's a weird, strange arrangement. It doesn't have any guitar in it. Right. It's only like yeah. synthesizers and bass and a little bit of drums. Still looking for that Jimmy Bean. Jimmy Bean. 
James Dean. Georgia Hubley of Yola Tango, drummer and, and sometimes vocalist, is on one track, and uh, Yonder Blue is much more of a sort of traditional beautiful kind of ballad and Georgia has that that great voice we don't hear it often but who doesn't love when Georgia gets to sing a tune with Yola Tango John McIntyre how did that come about because that's almost like a song song yeah. that, that songwriting bands would write yeah well that song is actually an amalgamation of two different ideas that that Dan and Jeff wrote um, and we had taken it to a point where we felt happy with what we had done with the arrangement and everything and it still seemed like there was an element missing. And we knew that we wanted to ask Georgia to do something, but uh, we weren't sure what. And then it got to a point where it became obvious that that was the track for her to sing. The You're listening to Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. We are live in the studio with Tortoise. So you guys are going to play one more song for us, right? Sure. It's like Christmas, Greg. Yeah. How great is this? What are you going to play? What should we, what should we play? Tesseract. Thank you. 
Tesseract by Tortoise, live on Sound Opinions. John McIntyre, Jeff Parker, Doug McCombs, John Hurden, Dan Bitney. It's been a real pleasure to have you guys here. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, guys. You can check out video of all of Tortoise's performances at soundopinions.org. But now we want to hear from you. What do you think about Tortoise and the post-rock movement? Give us a call on our hotline, 888-859-1800, or connect with us via Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. When we return, we'll remember electronic punk pioneer Alan Vega, and we'll share our thoughts on the sophomore album from British soul musician Michael Kiwanuka. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and PRX. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Jim Deergottis. My partner is Greg Cott. And that is a little bit of the song Dream Baby Dream by Suicide. We are paying homage to Alan Vega, the singer of that proto-punk, proto-electronic, proto-industrial, proto-you-name-it band from New York, formed in 1970. If you are not familiar with Suicide, but that song sounded vaguely familiar. No less an authority than Bruce Springsteen has been covering it quite a bit in his shows over the last couple of years. Suicide sounds nothing like Springsteen, but it's a testament to him covering that tune to the far-ranging influence of this band. As I said, formed in 1970, Alan Vega, the singer, was born Baruch Alan Bermowitz in uh, Bensonhurst, Brooklyn, teamed up with Martin Rev, one of the greatest names in rock history, and really did for the synthesizer something second only to what Kraftwerk did. If Kraftwerk showed that great pop music, a combination of Chuck Berry and the Beach Boys, could be made with electronic instruments, synthesizers, Moogs, Suicide showed that you could really tick people off with these electronic machines. Aggression was part of this band's mix from the very beginning. Alan Vega proudly claimed that he once had an axe thrown at his head during a suicide show. There was a famous riot that happened at one of the shows long before Public Image Limited's riot. Uh, 
Vega said, we almost got killed. I always love that reaction. <laughs> I'd say that one half of any audience wanted to kill us and the other half loved us. Uh, the people who loved them included many, many bands in the electronic world today. I think, you know, a group like the Cars wouldn't have been possible mm-hmm. without suicide. Again, getting there in 1970. That's well before punk begins to erupt at CBGB's on the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Uh, you know, the group never formally broke up. It, it, it sort of ended in the 80s, but there were many reunions after that. They would still get together and play. There were other albums after the fact, but the real impact was from 70 to the heyday of New York punk. You know, you could see a bill with the Ramones and Suicide and the Talking Heads and really mean it when you said, there's the future of rock and roll. I think there's only one way to pay tribute to Alan Vega. Died at age 78 in his sleep at home. He'd suffered a stroke a few years ago. We have to play their version of Sister Ray, their signature song. The one song you have to go to if you want to say, what was suicide? And it's called Frankie Teardrop by Suicide on Sound Opinions. Frankie picked up a gun. Pointed at the six-month-old kid in the crib. Oh, Frankie. Frankie with the gun to his head. Frankie's dead. That is suicide with Frankie Teardrop in tribute to Alan Vega, dead at the age of 78. listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott with Jim DeRogatis, and that's Michael Kiwanuka with the title track from his second album, Love and Hate. Michael Kiwanuka, a UK artist, grew up in uh, in London, was the uh, the child of Ugandan immigrants who came over to escape the Amin regime and forged a, a, an early career as a studio musician, made a couple of EPs, but was playing on a lot of other people's records. Finally got a chance to make his own record in 2012 on the heels of becoming an opening act for Adele on her 2011 tour just as she was emerging. 
And that uh, Home Again record in 2012 got a lot of nice reviews, made number four on the UK charts, earned him some comparisons to the folk soul movement of the 60s and 70s and people like Terry Callier and Richie Havens and Bill Withers. It was produced by Paul Butler of a UK band called The Bees. Kiwanuka sort of re- considered where he wanted to take his music over the next four years. And while he continued to work with Butler, uh, he brought in some new collaborators, most most specifically uh, Danger Mouse, a.k.a. Brian Burton. And they went to work on what became Love and Hate. We're going to play a track from it first before we review it. It's called Black Man in a White World from Love and Hate by Michael Kiwanuka on Sound Opinions. I've been I've been high, I've been sold all my lies. I've got nothing left to pay. I've got nothing left to say. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white world. I'm a black man in a white. I'm in love, but I'm still sad. I found peace, but I'm not glad. On my nights and on my days, I've been trying wrong. I'm a black man in a white world. 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 That is Black Man in a White World by Michael Kiwanuka from Love and Hate, his second album. And what a song, Greg. On the second night of the Democratic Convention, we saw that procession of mothers of murdered young black men in the U.S., one after another, talking about the tragedies of this loss. That was the song that should have been playing. What a turn Michael Kiwanuka took from that first album. I mean, the first album is fine. He he had started out, as you said, as a session musician and playing uh, as a backing musician. One of the people he backed was the former drummer for Bill Withers, right? There's a lot of Bill Withers on that first album. I know you love Bill mm-hmm. Withers. Who doesn't love Bill Withers, right? But what was missing on that album was the protest aspect of folk music, and that is here. Not in a preachy way, not in a heavy-handed way, in a very artful way. On songs like Cold Little Heart and Love and Hate, the title track, Place I Belong, and obviously Black Man in a White World, Kiwanuka is looking around at the world today and saying it's very difficult to be black still. Why? His experience, he fled Uganda, as you said, uh, his family, because of Idi Amin, who was murdering his own people. You know, bloodthirsty, horrible person. There is a sense of of depression and sadness and, and doubt about the fundamental humanity of mankind on this record, but the music lifts us up. I love this record. It's an incredibly powerful record, and it even starts with like a 10-minute shoegaze epic. It's 10 minutes into the record before you even hear Michael sing. It's a buy-it record. Well, there's several songs on this record, Jim, where he really stretches out, and that first song, you know, it hits you right between the eyes. I mean, it's five minutes of preamble, but yeah. it's amazing preamble, and with then the song starts. And, and this atmosphere... Okay, so I'm making a statement here. Ten-minute opening track on this record. This is not the old Michael Kiwanuka, and I'm glad to hear it because, you know, I I know that people love that first record. I'm a fan of that style of music. I just don't need to hear it again. 30 years later, done by an artist who's 
clearly well-meaning, but isn't really adding anything to the conversation. Kiwanuka has really reinvented himself here. There's a boldness here in this record that far outstrips that first record. Working with Brian Burton, Danger Mouse, uh, gave him the courage to take these chances, like go out a little further here. You can say these things in a song. And the other thing I liked about the production was the use of the strings, you know, that he doesn't overdo it. You know, there's a tendency when you're using string parts to layer them on too thick and it gets mushy and pretty. It's not that at all. They accent things, they underline emotions. So it's a wonderful production job by, by Danger Mouse. But more importantly, it has brought out a masterful performance by Kiwanuka. It's a Buy It record. So that's a very enthusiastic double Buy It from Michael Kiwanuka. Greg, what's on the show next week? Jim, we're going to explore the roots of ska music in Jamaica and the two waves that came after it. Special thanks to Mary Gaffney, Andrew Gill, and Gabrielle Wright for our session with Tortoise. Sound Opinions is produced by Brendan Banaszak, Evan Chung, Alex Claiborne, and our intern is Daphne McLean. On Sound Opinions, everyone's a critic. So now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Jay Pauling from Nashville, Tennessee. I really enjoy the show. I particularly enjoyed the election anthem episode, but it occurred to me that you may have overlooked one. Uh, we have to go back a few years, but Alice Cooper elected from the Billion Dollar Babies album. Cynical Times, I think, deserve a cynical election song, and Elected by Alice Cooper certainly fits uh, the bill. Enjoy the show. Please continue to produce it. You guys do great work, even if I don't always agree with you. Bye for now. Hey, guys. What's up? This is Bernie calling from Citibank on Fifth Avenue in Manhattan. (laughs) I'm calling to recommend my favorite song for Hillary Clinton's campaign, uh, Women of the World Take Over. It's by Jim O'Rourke, one of the albums that he did a while back. Women of the World Take Over, because if you don't, the world will come to an end. <laughs> cool. Uh, you guys rule. Thanks. My name is Courtney Harris. I was living in France as a college student when Moby's album came out in 99. And 
I was struck by his music, much like the rave scene, um, without the drugs. I have a master's in counseling psychology, and I teach yoga, and use music to create an atmosphere. And one of the biggest comments that I hear about the classes is about the music. And it's just so inspiring to hear it's not going to change. And it's, it's one thing that's super alive and well, and it will keep being reinvented forever and ever. And I hope Moby keeps producing records. This segment this afternoon was incredible. Thank you. My name is Bernard. I wanted to tell you how music was so valuable to me when my late wife had a stroke and she was totally paralyzed. She couldn't move and she couldn't speak. She just looked. And so I didn't know what to do. I was sitting there with her. Then I started singing her old time songs. If you know Susie, like I know Susie, oh, 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 what a girl. Say if you knew Susie, like I know Susie, oh, 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 what a girl. There's none so classy as this fair lassie, oh, 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 my goodness, what a chassis. And she started singing with me, and I had another song I did with her, and then she started talking. My wife was a special ed teacher, and she used to tell me how she would get some of her students to stop stuttering. She would have them sing, and when they would sing, they wouldn't stutter. And so that's why I used that. And it worked, and it worked, and it helped her. Bye-bye. No more messages. To share your opinions on Sound Opinions, call 888-859-1800. We'll be back next week on Sound Opinions from WBEZ Chicago and distributed by PRX.